They do or they don't. That ain't right. Left side heavy tonight. Hey, all right. As long as you're confident, that's all that really matters, right? All right, turn to Habakkuk. We are glad you are here. Um, If this is your first time with us on a Wednesday night, we generally move much more quickly on Wednesday nights. The the idea is that if if you're attending church here and this is your church home, that you can get um, most of the Bible over the course of your years here. Um, on Sunday mornings, we, use, we move very slowly uh, through books of the Bible, sometimes taking you know, the better part of a decade to finish a book. And uh, we, we do it expositorily, verse by verse, never skipping anything. Um, but on Wednesday nights, we do what are called overview studies, and they go much more quickly. And we, we're, our goal is to get a good idea <clears throat> of what is in each book, so we have a good idea of what all the Lord has said uh, in its completion and so in its totality. So... Um, so that, that's our word tonight. We're in the second uh, study of Habakkuk. And I also want to remind you that um, our kids are one week behind y'all. So we, we structured that on purpose so as to hopefully facilitate more conversation in the home. So like every, everyone who's fifth grade um, up through uh, 12th is one week behind on the studies. And so they are currently studying their first study in Habakkuk. So as parents, when y'all go home, utilize that to have more conversations with your kids about what they're studying because that will be fresh on their minds and you will have been in it for two weeks. So that's an important thing to not, to not forget as we go through these. One quick announcement. We have a boys camp out October 23rd through the 24th. It's from 6 p.m. to 11 a.m. at Morris Beans Campground. I'm not sure if he knows it yet, but we turned his yard into a campground. Um, there's a link that we sent out uh, via the church email. And if you can click on that, there's, there's ways to RSVP to say you're going to be a part of it. But also, if you just want to help with something, maybe make some food. I mean, if we expect um, dads to make, you know, the good desserts and stuff, that's, that's just too much of an expectation. And so if you wanted to help with, you know, cookies, Corey, or something like that, um, that would be just fantastic. But there's a way to sign up on that link to, uh, to, to help uh, in some different ways and also to RSVP. So y'all make sure to, to make that a priority. Let's pray, and we will dive into the text. Lord, we love you very much. Uh, we count it a privilege to, to be here, um, to not have to whisper, to be able to stop in the middle of a week and consider your word. Uh, Lord, every time we engage your word, we learn more about you. We learn more about ourselves. We learn more about reality and about truth. And so I pray for that tonight. Um, as we did last week, Lord, I, I pray for honesty. Um, Habakkuk is a difficult book. Uh, that poses some very deep questions that have to do with sort of foundational perspectives that we have on the world and on you and on our problems and on the result of sin and on the, the possibility of hope. So, Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you tonight and ask that you would just uh, use this time as you see fit. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought, even though I'm a little bit fuzzy-headed, and I pray that uh, I would be able to uh, teach well and that our conversation together would be edifying. You are very good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So, a little recap from last week. Last week we got through the first chapter. Tonight we'll get through chapters, through chapters 2 and 3, so we'll move a little more quickly regarding the text. But what did Habakkuk accuse God of in his opening prayer last week? He goes to the Lord in prayer. Um, he start, it says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet, the prophet saw, and he says, O Lord... So he's going to God, and what was the complaint, or the, what was he accusing God of in that opening prayer? Yeah, not caring. What else did he, how, how did he word that? That God was being what? What? Slow, idle, um, almost aloof, that he doesn't care about evil. So these opening lines, as you read them out loud, you kind of duck a little bit because it feels like lightning might strike because it is so incredibly bold, to say the least, to go to God and say, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. I mean, he is... He's saying things to God that we would probably never dare say to him. Now, we may have our own version of that, but, but he is very, very honest with the Lord about where he's at. And what was the source of the violence and the injustice that Habakkuk was referring to? There, there was oppression from outside, but what was the main thing that, that was the cause of the violence and the injustice that we talked about last week? Remember we went to 2 Kings 23? Remember that? We looked at Josiah's reforms. His own people. Yeah, Israel had gotten to a point where they were being... Remember all the things that had to be reformed? Gave us an idea of the state before reform. And so they were... Remember some of the things they, they had? They had um, male cult prostitutes. Like, you've gone way off base when you are God's people and you have male cult prostitutes. And they, had, uh, they were sacrificing babies to Moloch. They had the high places. They had Asherah. They had all these different idols. And so when he's crying out, he's not just saying, hey, the Assyrians are, are hurting us. What are you going to do about it? He, he is brokenhearted over the state of his people. He's brokenhearted over the state of Israel. We know as we've gone through the prophets, as we've gone through a large majority of the Old Testament so far on our Wednesday night studies, God's people are up and down and up and down. They, they're doing good, then someone steps off in the ditch, and then they're doing good, and, they, and they, there's an ebb and flow to their obedience that's horribly inconsistent. And, and as people who are made of the same stuff, it shouldn't be hard for us to look at them and, and, and see some reflection of the things we struggle with in being inconsistent. However, they have gone way the wrong way, and they have got... Um, idols set up, they're, they're guilty of idolatry, they're guilty of paganism, they're guilty of horrible things concerning children. The state of the family is really, really messed up, um, and the, uh, the temple of God does not look the way it is supposed to look by God's design. And so we have this thing where Habakkuk's crying out, God, why aren't you doing anything? It's really bad, because his own people are vile in this moment. How did God respond to Habakkuk? What was the main conclusion that we can draw from God's response to Habakkuk? Habakkuk, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first thing. He says, hey, lift up your eyes and look, for there's things going on that if I told you, you would not believe. So there's this thing that God does in his response that says, Habakkuk, 
you think you care more about this violence and injustice than I do, but you're mistaken. I'm God, and I will always care more about the health of my people than you will ever will. And so he, get, he gets his attention by saying, lift up your eyes, look, I'm doing a work that you wouldn't believe if I told you among the nations, but, but what's the solution that God is going to bring to the, Habak- to the problem that Habakkuk presents? <clears throat> Yeah, Babylonians. Yeah, the Chaldeans. Yeah, he says, behold, I know. I, I know there's an issue there in Israel. So I'm going to bring in the Chaldeans. And what they're going to do is kick your tail and wear you out. And you are going to, I'm going to utilize them as the instrument to, um, uh, to tend to the injustices and the violence that you have become. So don't worry, I've got it. So that, that's the, God, what are you going to do? Oh, don't worry, I'm raising up a really evil nation that are wicked. Their horses are strong. They have no, no, uh, no qualms about just knocking out village after village. They, they scoff at kings. Remember, they'd come up to a fortress and laugh, and then they just move the earth and take the fortress because there were so many of them and they were so strong. And so that's God's um, so, uh, response to Habakkuk. And tonight we're going to look at Habakkuk's response and see if he's like, oh, great idea, that's what I was hoping you were going to say, or if maybe it caught him a little off guard. So last week we closed with a promise and a question. The promise that we addressed last week, see last week was kind of an emotional week, it was, it was, uh, it was deep, we, we prayed about honesty because of the things that are presented in this text, but last week we asked at the beginning, what is it that makes you feel hopeless? We ask, what are the things that cause you to be angry or frustrated with God? Those are two questions that we presented. Those are pretty serious questions. We closed with Romans 8.28 and the reality that God will never give you that which is bad for you. God will never give you that which is bad for you. And that's a hard thing to hear sometimes because there are people in this room who've been through some very bad things. You've been on the receiving end of injustice. You've had sickness and health problems that are very difficult. You've had um, issues with, with your children. You have had issues with other family members. I mean, there are a, a number of very real issues that, that people have gone through in this room. And so when I say God will never give you, has never given you, and will never give you in the future that which is bad for you, it may bring up a few questions. And so the question that I left y'all with last week and I asked y'all to think about throughout the course of the week was when is that most difficult to believe? When is it most difficult for you in your life to believe that God won't ever give me that which is bad for me? So I want to take a minute tonight, um, and it may be less than a minute. It may be 10 seconds of awkward silence. I don't know. But I feel led to ask, is there anyone that wants to share? Anyone that thought about that and said, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw it out there. This is when it's most difficult for me to trust that God will never give me that which is bad for me. Because... I believe that we're, we're all dealing with very real things, and so sometimes that honesty is helpful, and sometimes it's helpful to bring down walls for someone else. So I'll put it out there. Did anyone come across something that they feel led to share f- uh, about from last week? And you don't have to. Just putting it out there for like eight more seconds. In the margin here in my notes, I wrote maybe, maybe not. So I'm going to circle maybe not, and uh, we're going to move along. Turn to back chapter 2, back in chapter 2. While I, I, didn't, I didn't suspect that anyone would want to, but I felt, felt like I needed to put that out there. However, I do encourage you all to continue to 
work through that. When is it the case that, that I have trouble believing that God doesn't give me that which is bad for me, and that he never has, and that he never will? So y'all continue to work through that. As we look at Habakkuk 2, at this point, Habakkuk has cried out to God because the evil of Israel's leadership is too much to bear. He accuses God of not hearing, of not helping, of not caring about the injustice. God responds, don't worry, I'm raising up the godless Babylonians who are vile and evil and wicked and, and just brutes um, to punish you. And then Habakkuk's response, and in, 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 uh, actually we're going to look at 112. Habakkuk says this to God's plan. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them with, repute, with reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows us up? Or swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in the dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and then makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net, mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. <clears throat> what did Habakkuk just say? In your own words, briefly. Yeah, it, it, he's calling God out. And he's saying, essentially, um, well, what, what is it that he's troubled by? He, he reveals something that he's troubled by. I don't want us to miss this in this verse. There's a particular thing that irks him. Ones that are less righteous are being swallowed up by the yeah. ones that are more righteous are being swallowed up by the less righteous. Yeah. He's saying, well, God, we're bad, but we're not that bad, right? <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying. He just wanted to, we're so violent, we're so vile, we're so, there's so much injustice, things are totally backwards. But the Babylonians? Seriously, the Babylonians? We're not as bad as they are. How is it that you're going to bring in a more wicked nation than us to do your work? And he even gets real personal and, and makes an appeal to maybe God's heartstrings and says, you can't even look at evil. How, how are you going to use evil? Like, God, you, your eyes are too pure, lily pure, to look upon evil how, how, how could you do this? How, how could you make such a plan that seems so, so, uh, so unexpected? I mean, you, certainly you've had times in your own life where you pray to God and He gives you the answer and you're kind of like, the Babylonians? That's the answer? I, I was hoping for something a little more uh, on, obvious, a little more detailed, a little more efficient, uh, a little more uh, immediate. Um, it's, it's easy uh, to relate here, but he's just so bold to say everything that probably we think but don't say, especially to God. So he's troubled by the fact that God would use a more wicked nation to bring justice to a less wicked nation, which I'm glad that he feels confident about his gauge on who's more wicked and less wicked. And if God can't look at wrong, how can God utilize wrong if he can't even look at it? And God answers him 
I mean, every time it says, and the Lord answered, you should just think mercy and grace and mercy and grace and mercy and grace. You're getting what you don't deserve and you're not getting what you do deserve in that moment. God is amazingly uh, slow to anger in, in this entire exchange. And so he says in 2 2, the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. God's saying, hey, Habakkuk, write this down. I don't want you to miss it, so write it down. Take a picture, it'll last longer. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God makes it a point to remind Habakkuk that God works on his own timetable. And oh, do we hate to hear that. I, I do. When I pray about something, that's usually the moment I would like for it to go ahead and be remedied and put a bow on it and let's move on. That moment. Heartfelt prayer. Let's, let's get this done. Let's take care of whatever the issue is, whatever the sin is, whatever the confusion is, whatever my parenting problem is, whatever issue I'm dealing with in my marriage and my friendships. God, I've prayed about it. Let's get this done and move on. And God here says, wait. If it seems slow, if it seems like I'm moving slow to you, Habakkuk, you need to wait because it will surely come. It will not delay. God's promises are sure and his timing is perfect. The reason that timing is troubling to us is we're often far more aware of how things can get worse than we are of how things will get better. We lose sight of promises, and for me at least, when it comes down to timing, and I'm like, well, God, if you take like two more weeks, it's going to affect like eight other things. And those eight things are important, and there's like subcategories for each of those eight things, so it's really like eight times like, they have at least four sub. that's like 32 things that are going to be affected if we don't get this remedied quickly, and I think in terms, I forget that in fact it's going to get better. In some way. Now, this is not some health, wealth, prosperity, just pray hard enough and after enough time you'll get rich and you won't be sick anymore. This is God moving in His timing to never do that which is bad for you. Always working for kingdom good and you're a part of that kingdom. So, here, there's this thing that we have to address where we're often far more aware that things can get worse. If God doesn't do something right now, like I'm at my wit's end right now. So if nothing happens good right now, tomorrow I'm going to be beyond my wit's end and I'm flipping my lid and freaking out and I don't know if I can handle that. Anxiety, 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 anxiety is where that's where that comes from. Some of y'all are like, I'm anxious because you're talking about it. This is why the next verse says, the righteous live by faith. It says in that next verse, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. In turbulent times, there is no walking by sight. Like when God says, the righteous live by faith. A lot of Christians are like, yeah, 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 we do. The righteous live by faith. Well, that means sometimes, most of the time, a lot of the times things are hard. There's something that you don't know. There's something you don't have sight of. And you are walking by faith. And it's not just faith in the air. And it's not just faith in the notion of God. And it's not even just faith in the concept that, yeah, there's a God who makes promises. It's faith in the very promises of a great God who never lies. 
So the faith that you have is supposed to be connected to particular promises of God. We genuinely have to trust God and His promises. Do you realize that this is in fact how we are made right with God through the work of Christ? Dever has a note in his uh, Old Testament survey. says, People are made right with God not through meritorious works, but by believing God's promises. Sometimes, I think we act as if we preferred a version of Christianity where we did not need God's promises. This comes back to something we've talked about before. Like, You can trust God's promises. And I think some of us, if we're honest like Habakkuk, we would actually say out loud, I, I don't want to need God's promises. Like it says, comfort those who were comforted with, with the comfort that you comforted us, God. I would rather a version of faith that's not actually faith. It's actually sight, because I would rather not ever need comfort. I would rather have a version of Christian walk where I don't need a refuge, and I don't need a rock, and I don't need a sustainer, and I don't need one who's, sh- who's going to shepherd me. I would rather be able to shepherd myself and never have any problems that I can't handle on my own. I mean, all of these texts are just flying in the face of this sort of individualistic walking by sight notion that I don't, I don't think it's that foreign to us. I think a lot of us probably struggle with it more than we may give thought to. People are made right with God, not through meritorious works, but by believing His promises. So it's not a matter of just being good people who do good things in the middle of your trials. It's bigger than that. Obey the Lord. Don't stoop. Don't turn to sin. Don't, 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 don't allow the flesh to get the best of you. I mean, put to death the deeds of the flesh, but it's not just about doing good things in the middle of the trial. It's about trusting God's promises in the middle of the trial and trusting the God who makes those promises. What we're seeing in these next verses is trusting God is contrasted with the reality of Babylon that's explained in 4 through 20. So look at verse 4. Behold, the soul's puffed up, not right within him, but the faith shall live by, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as white as shale. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So God is saying there are those who collect people. That's, that's very wicked. There are those who look at the nations and say, I will conquer the nations. We look at the nations and say, those nations belong to God. And in due time, he will make all of them a part of his own kingdom. And he's already doing kingdom work everywhere. And we are waiting for the return of Christ where we are all gathered up into that kingdom. And that's how believers view the world and the nations. And he's saying those who are wicked view the nations as, those are my nations. I'm going to go conquer them. I'm going to collect people. I'm going to collect people groups. I'm going to collect cultures. That's what kings would do. They would bring the best and the brightest of the nations that they would conquer, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, all those guys. Part of the reason that they were put in that spotlight is because they were the best of those who were conquered, and so they brought them in and, and made them a part of their kingdom, owning them as, as like material goods. goes on to say, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtor suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of, of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. God's saying, woe to those who will harm others, who will take from others, 
to build bigger houses for themselves and safer, and safer places so that they themselves are not within the reach of harm. You cannot build a house with harm and think you're out of the reach of harm, is what God is saying. He said, you use violence to build it, violence will take it, is what he's saying. Yes? He's written this down, and God is, God is speaking to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is writing this down. So it's like Habakkuk's writing down what God's saying, and it'll be read by the people. He goes on to say, Woe to him who gets evil gain, sets his nest on Verse 10, You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. I mean, that's a big statement. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond... Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. We don't have a ton of that here stateside, but south of the border there's a lot of that going on. In other parts of the world there's a lot of that going on where people are building towns with blood and they are founding cities with iniquity. And God's addressing it. And behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? And then look at this little verse. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're going to come back to that. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. God says, when you get someone drunk so that you can look upon their nakedness, I know you're doing that. I mean, this was written how many, how many thousands of years ago? You go to any college town, and that's pretty much a regularly scheduled activity. Try to get someone drunk and naked. That's what we're talking about here in this text. He's saying, woe to those who do that. You will have the fill, your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. I mean, it's getting kind of graphic. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? God's saying, it'd be the equivalent of us pulling up one of our weird-looking things back here. I address them because I want you to know they're not idols, even though they look a little idolish. Um, the idea is it's creation worshiping, it's part of a tree, looks like a worshiper, that's the idea. Um, but if I brought that up here and I started talking to that thing, you guys would be like, you have lost your stinking mind, right? If I started trying to say, awake, tell me something good. God's saying, that is so stupid. That, 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 does that teach? And it's interesting that God brings about teaching because they're going to the idols to get something, to gain something, to learn something. God's saying, I can't teach you. You can't talk to a rock or a piece of wood. You made the thing. How utterly ridiculous. God's language here is saying, that is stupid. That is utterly moronic, ridiculous, over the top. Why in the world do you think it is a bright thing for created beings to try to whittle something out of something and, and think it's going to bring something to you that you didn't already have? It's bizarre. God is saying, that is bizarre. That is not normal. Can that teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. He's like, I'm the one who gave you your borrowed breath, 
and you think that this thing that doesn't have a borrowed breath is going to help you. But the Lord, there's another one, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So there are groups of people in our world who try to build towns with blood and found cities on iniquity. There are people who get others drunk just to gaze upon their nakedness. There are people who care more about themselves than others and will exploit and oppress others for their own gain and comfort. I mean, human trafficking is a problem. That's a very real, sad thing that seems to be growing and getting worse. Selfish gain, comfort, exploiting and oppressing others. So there are two realities that need to be seen clearly for the violent idolaters and those that they oppress. There's these two realities. Verse 14 and verse 20 are the two realities that those idolaters need to see, that Habakkuk needs to know God has in mind for the idolaters, and that Habakkuk needs to understand as one who's a mouthpiece for God's people. Verse 14 says, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And verse 20 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Those are two Think of them, I mean, you could even like draw a light bulb in the margin of your Bible or something, or like a big bright star or something. Those are two pieces of very bright truth in the midst of very dark current realities. Verse 14 and verse 20. So my question to you guys is, according to those two things, how is it, how does God want his works to be seen in light of evil works? God's saying, you could, all you got to do is look around. All you got to do is watch the news. And you can see the evil works. And he's saying... He's saying something about how he wants his works to be seen in light of the evil works. And what is it? How does God want his works to be seen? He wants his works to show his glory. Yep. To respect and be reverent about the fact that his works will show his glory. He wants us to be knowledgeable of his glory. How do we know that? Yeah, we know it because he's going to fill the earth with it. It's not just the reality that he's going to fill the earth with it. It's that he wants you to know the certainty that he is going to fill the earth with it. Does that make sense? In the middle of this nightmarish season that Israel is in, he's saying to Habakkuk, I will, there's no uncertainty, I will fill the earth with my glory. That is going to happen. As much as the waters cover the sea, my glory will fill this earth. And what is the other thing that he says in verse 20? Yes, I'm in control. I will fill the earth with my glory. I am seated on my throne. I'm in my holy temple. There's a reality right now of who I am and where I'm at, and there's a reality in the future of what I'm going to do, and it should affect the way you view all the violence and wickedness around you, is what he's saying. It's a Yeah. So that the people would die. His presence was there. Yeah. And there was a soberness in the camp yep. when the presence of God was there. Yep. And that made 
Yeah, that's a great point. Yes, that's the next point. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's not much to say. It's like Isaiah, you know, trying to look for a crack in the floor to climb into. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, of people of unclean lips in the midst of God. So God wants us to know these realities in the middle of the trouble, that he is on his throne, that he is seated in session, that he is aware, and that he will fill the earth with his glory. That affects us. So we apply this to things that we worry about and struggle with. So like terrorism. God is saying, I want to fill the earth with my glory. Know it. It's for sure. I'm on my throne, for sure. Maybe for you it's trusting other people. Maybe it's finances. Maybe you struggle with parenting, marriage, sickness. Dever has a note. He says, if you're a Christian, I love this. If you're a Christian, you can be assured that within a few decades or even a few years, all your worries will have been proven demonstrably unfounded either because Christ will have returned or God will have otherwise resolved whatever was causing you to worry. Do you ever take the time to look back at the things you used to worry about? That's kind of what he's pointing to there. I remember things I worried about when I was a child. I was an anxious child, total weirdo. I worried about stuff that I shouldn't have worried about. And it's interesting because some of it I never dealt with. And so now that I'm an adult and a parent, I just have flipped it and I worry about the same version of the things I worried about when I was a kid, but just the parent version of it. So like as a kid, I would worry that something was going to happen to my parents. When I was a parent, I'm worried something might happen to me and what's going to happen to my kids because I know as a kid I worried about what would happen to my parents. You see that? It just goes through and through. Did it help me at all as a child to worry about anything? No. No, it never helps us. We're not to be anxious about anything. So what we do here is we apply these truths about what God is doing, who God is, where God is, to these things that trouble us. And look at verse 20. The Lord's in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. By God's design, the church needs to be different from the world, especially when things are going bad. By God's design, the church is supposed to be different than the world, especially when things are not going well. How are we supposed to differ in the face of opposition, violence, and uncertainty? What does it say? How are we supposed to differ? One word. We are what? That's exactly right. Silent. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, that's exactly right. We are silent. I love how you all work together to come up with that answer as a group. It was so good. Yeah. So God is intentionally contrasting himself with Babylon's idols. He's, he's saying, well, what, what do we have that the idolaters do not have? It helps us to understand that silence. What do we have that the idolaters don't have? Let's say there's a guy over here asking questions of God, and there's another guy over here asking questions of the wooden idol. They're not idols. It's just an example. Don't, I don't want to mess y'all up like during worship. But what does this guy have that this guy doesn't? Answers. Answers. Perfect answer. Answers. That's what they have. This, the silence of expectancy is what we're talking about. Write that in your notes. The silence of expectancy. It's not, God's not just saying, shut up, I'm, I'm, I got this. It's the silence of expectancy. 
the one who we worship, the one who we go to, actually has something to say because he's the one who gave us our borrowed breath. He has his own breath by which he will speak truth to us when we go there. The one who's looks, who is going after the idol does not have anyone who will give an answer. So Israel's God speaks. So close your mouth, open your ears, because the real God will speak through his word is what we're looking at here. Yep, that's exactly right. That's a great parallel verse. This, uh, he goes on to say, um, Dever goes on to say about this uh, verse, he says, can you imagine a whole community of people living in expectation of God's word and, word and God's faithfulness to his promises? And he, he goes on to say, our churches would increasingly become marked by confidence, hope, optimism, and joy because we know that God is committed to turning even our most Babylonian circumstances to good. I need to hear that pretty regularly. Because if I'm going to be honest, if I'm not staying in step with the Spirit and the flesh is, is winning out, I have a terrible tendency towards pessimism and futility. Like, what's the point? No one's going to change. Everyone is what they're going to do, what they're going to do. And it's not going to matter. We're just some little church and little grave. We're not even in the Metroplex. We're out here in the sticks. What's, you know, what kind of difference can we make for the kingdom? Those thoughts can, they can take over and just run a hundred miles an hour the wrong way. I love the reminder here. Confidence, hope, optimism, joy. That's good to know in the, in the face of the Babylonian circumstances that God is going to turn to good. He goes on to say this. This is probably my favorite part. I mean, as a pastor, I can just take a breath when I hear this. He says this. We will never face any circumstance that will successfully oppose God from building his church. That is a good reminder most of the things in the news right now would, would lead you to believe otherwise. It is such a good reminder. We will never. That's what's so good about studying the prophets, what's so good about studying church history, what's so good about studying Old Testament. It's amazing. I keep saying it. It's a recurring theme. The fact that anyone on planet Earth still loves God is proof that God is alive and doing work. And when you look at those people and you look at what they have in common, it's proof of the movement of the Holy Spirit. Because when you look at the ebb and flow of every culture that ever existed, the rise and fall of every single empire, when God's very people, like do you realize if these people screw it up so bad that they just die off in their violence, we don't exist. But guess what? We do exist. We have always existed and we will continue to exist when time, a created thing, melts back into eternity. This is a beautiful, beautiful reality. He says no anti-religious laws, no staff difficulties, no honorary church members, not a one. No external controversies will ever derail God's good plans for his children. You'll never face something that will successfully oppose God from building his church. God may shut this place down someday. That's something else we've looked at. You can do the same thing in, in another spot. And over here, there are just people flooding in saying, tell me more about Jesus. I, I'm, I'm here to listen. And over here, you can be working just as hard with the same brilliant staff that's wholehearted and devoted, and God may shut it down and move you all on to something else. Those aren't the guarantees we have. The guarantees are that no matter what you face, nothing 
nothing at all, will ever oppose God from building his church. So my question for y'all is, what are some current Babylonian circumstances in the news that we need to apply this truth to? Because that's what it means to walk in faith. You take the circumstance, and you find God's promise, and you say God's promise trumps that, that, that circumstance. So what are some Babylonian circumstances, some things we see in the news that we need to apply these, things to, these truths to? ISIS, absolutely. There was a point not too long ago where I was convinced, I was like, I think the news genuinely wants me to believe that the, the, the thing I should fear the most is someone coming in through the Mexican border and cutting my head off. Like, that's what I get from the news. Thanks for the encouragement. News. So ISIS, yeah, we apply God's promises to this. No matter how hard you try, try as you may, violent as you may be, there have been others who are far more violent. And guess what? They're in their tombs. And many of their people don't exist. No one's afraid of Egypt and Babylon and Assyria anymore. But God's people still exist all over the world. And we didn't exist that way by being violent back. God sustains his people. So ISIS, what's another thing? What? Yeah, Sharia law. What else? Abortion. Hashtag shout your abortion is trending. There's no way to spin that that's not utterly vile and evil. The hashtag of shout your abortion. It's not a political issue. This is an issue about design. This is an issue about listen to what you're saying. Shout your abortion. Yeah, these truths trump that. That's a reality for us. Terrorism, marriage laws. I mean, you know, everyone, the gay marriage laws passed. And so everyone's like, oh, the church can't exist anymore. Yes, the church can continue to exist. I promise. We do have to be smart. The change is we're not allowed to utilize our facility in the public marketplace to make profit. And we can't allow anyone else to utilize our facility to go into the public marketplace to make a profit. That's the effect. Now, there's moral effects. There's effects of the way relationships are handled. But the way it affects the church right now is if you're not regularly renting your building out to make money, well, you don't have anything to worry about. Not now, anyway. So that's a real deal. Something else I thought of was the rising cost of insurance. Did you all know that our insurance is, is for the church to purchase insurance for our staff, the cost went up 21% this year. 7% last year, 21% this year. I mean, if you look at it on paper... This is the stupidest long-term plan anyone could ever conceive of, right? I mean, just with that, that margin right there, within three years, you can't actually afford to hire staff anymore. So do we all freak out over things like that? No, we don't freak out over things like that. We apply God's promises to it and say, nothing has ever kept God's church from continually moving forward in a steady manner throughout the, the march of history. Look at chapter 3. We're going to go through this a little more quickly than I would like because chapter 3 is amazing. Verses 1 through 3 say, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. We all know Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. So we see him responding by saying, I hear your plan and I fear you, which is good. 
There's a little change here. Let's see if it continues. He goes on to say, His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked down, shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. What is he referring to? It's a lot of different stuff. What is some of the imagery that you're, you're picking up on there? He's talking about something that's happened, right? Yeah, there's some exodus up in there. What else? Some creation? Essentially what's going on here is what happens to us a lot of times when we have what Doc Holliday would call a moment of clarity. It's the moment where you, you realize, oh, I can answer my own question that I asked. It's like someone says to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn this mic. Someone says to you, um, uh, here's the answer, here's some parts of that. The question you asked, here's a few things for you to consider. And as you consider those few things, you're like, oh, yeah. I'm looking at God and saying, you are, you are being idle, and you are not tending to things the way you should. And then God responded, and then I said, oh, yeah, creation. Oh, yeah, the exodus. Oh, yeah, all these other times, these other battles where you executed justice in a mighty way and came to rescue your people and make them right. This is that aha moment where um, you realize, oh, I knew the answer to that question. He recalls all that God has done previously, the aha moment of, of saying, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. What's going on here is the same thing that has always gone on. You're more consistent than I am. You care more about your people than I do, and you will sustain your people more than I ever will. That's the aha moment for Habakkuk here. And so when he realizes it, he hears what God's doing. He, he proclaims, you created the earth. You led us out of Egypt. I mean, he's this guy who understands that his story is the story of a people. He's not just an individual looking at it from an individualistic way, saying, my story is the story of a people. I was one you led out of Egypt because I still exist. It goes on. This is the icing on the cake here in uh, verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. 
Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. That is such a huge statement. He's saying, I have a trembling body, quivering lips, rotten bones, trembling legs, because now I, Habakkuk, have to sit here knowing the Babylonians are going to come and hurt my people. Habakkuk has to sit there and know what God's about to do through the Chaldeans. But it's interesting because he's not just sitting there focusing on Babylon. He's sitting there saying, my body literally aches because of the pain of my people's unfaithfulness and unrighteousness. He says, but I will quietly, remember that, sit silently. He says, I will do that. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So he's not just anticipating the invasion. He's anticipating the day where God will exercise justice upon those who are evil that will invade them. He's looking at what God told him to look at in the middle of the trial. The trial's still there, but he's waiting for God to do what God said he would do. That's what he's anticipating, not the bad things. The bad things are reality. His body is aching because they're such a reality. But he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait. I'm going to sit here and be silent like you told me to, and I'm going to wait for you to do what you said you were going to do. And then... Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So my two questions. How have Habakkuk's circumstances changed? <coughs> they haven't. They haven't. Not a bit. How have they changed? They haven't. He's still there. His people are still being vile and evil. God's still going to bring the Babylonians to wipe him out. And he's saying, he's not saying, Oh, as long as the fig tree is blossoming and as long as there's fruit on the vines, as long as the olives are abundant and the flock is flourishing, I will worship the Lord. He's saying there's no fruit. There's no flock. The stalls are empty. If nothing's going right at all, I will worship the Lord. I want you all to see his circumstances didn't change at all. Like, if we wrote this book, we would have definitely not written it this way. We'd have been like, it was bad, and then he prayed, and then everything got good. But that's not how it's written. It goes on, the next question, what has happened? How has Habakkuk's attitude changed? What does he have now that he didn't have before? Hope? Understanding? Peace? And contentment? He's quieting his soul with the truths. That's Psalm 62. He's quieting his soul with the truths of God's word. So Habakkuk's changed heart results in actively rejoicing in hard circumstances, actively taking joy, seeing God as his strength, allowing God to make his feet like the deer's, actively, proclaim, actively proclaiming that it is God who makes him to tread on high places, and actively anticipating the time when God will overcome his enemies. He's not sitting there worrying about how his enemies are going to hurt him. He's 
focused on how God will overcome his enemies. So what I want us to see here is that contentment does not come from changed circumstances. He has little patience with God at the beginning and deep contentment with God in the end. And the only thing that changed was the reality of God. The only thing that changed was his perspective on the reality of God. God is unchanging, but he's looking at God. He's hearing from God. He's gaining knowledge of God, and his attitude is completely changed. And so what this should do for us, at the very least, Habakkuk, at the very least, should help us to realize it's not the circumstances that are necessarily our problems. Circumstances are hard. They're real. Um, some days they're just a flat-out pain in the neck. However, our circumstances are not reality. They're not truth, ultimately. There are things that God is in the circumstances and things that God is going to do about the circumstances that will make a huge difference in eternity. And so for God's people, we should always have a, an awareness of God's presence, an awareness of God's kingship, and we should have an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective is the only thing that's going to get Habakkuk through the Babylonians laying siege to his people because he trusts what God is doing. So I encourage you all this week, apply that to the, your Babylonian circumstances. Apply that to things that you struggle with. Apply that to things that you worry about. That God is seated, God is on his throne, and God will fill the earth with a knowledge of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for the prophet Habakkuk and how you worked through him and what you taught him. Um, Lord, not, I don't know if any of our circumstances are nearly as dire as Habakkuk's. However, that doesn't mean we make light of the hardships that people are facing. And so I pray that we would take your truth and your promise and exercise dominion over the fears that we have, exercise dominion over the anxieties that we struggle with. Lord, as people of faith, help us to be grabbing hold of your promises and applying them every day. Help us to be more than just people who, who sort of assent to a notion that you, you, you are a good God. But help us to go beyond that, to, to trust what you're doing, to trust what you've done, and to trust what you're going to do because of who you are. Lord, help us to genuinely walk by faith. Help us to be faithful people who walk according to that faith as we lay hold of your promises. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.